this morning, we're going to be in the book of Philippians, as you know, and our uh, title is Pursue Unity. If you know anything about religion, you know that disunity and division are major themes in religion, unfortunately. And we know that Christianity is not above that. In fact, I would venture to say that most of the commands that are found in the New Testament, at least those from Paul, are given against the backdrop of disunity. Romans 12, 16, live in harmony with one another. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no division among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. 2 Corinthians 13, 11. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration, Paul says. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. You remember Ephesians chapter 4, Paul encourages us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And then he says we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Whether writing to the church in Rome, Corinth, or Ephesus, Paul repeatedly calls the church to pursue, pursue unity and to ensure that there are no divisions. And Paul does so because, well, a unified church is a healthy church. Speaking of healthy churches, the church in Philippi was a healthy church. Paul opens his letter to that church, writing in chapter 1, verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. He goes on to say that the church was a partner with him in the gospel, chapter 1, verse 3, and he writes in chapter 2, verse 12, that they always obeyed. Quite a statement. The church was a generous church. He writes in chapter 4, verse 15, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. It appears the church even had a biblical leadership structure. In chapter 1, verse 1, Paul writes, To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. In lieu of this portrait of the church in Philippi, we're not surprised that Paul doesn't mention any specific false doctrine or false teaching that existed inside the church. He warns the church to stay away from false teachers but only as an external threat. Therefore, it's safe to say the church in Philippi is what you might call an ideal church. That being said, there is something looming on the horizon as you read through that letter. Like the light of a distant planet fighting its way through the darkness, disunity is searching for some way to expose itself. And Paul wants to make sure that the church in Philippi has no exposure to the deadly rays of disunity. He writes towards the beginning of the letter in chapter 1, verse 27, "...only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm," he says, "...in one spirit, with one mind." 
striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And he writes towards the end of the letter, in a very personal way, in chapter 4, verse 2, I, I entreat, he says, Eudoia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. These are two women, their names. Unity is so preeminent, it's so important, it's such a first thing that the Lord, in His infinite wisdom, chose to fix the names of these two women in Scripture. Their call to unity has been crying out to others, crying out to us, for 2,000 years. The call for unity in these verses, and in the verses we're going to study this morning, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, they remind us that unity is not natural. We don't just drift off into the horizon as a unified church. It doesn't work that way. To that point, a church's longevity likely speaks to how it views unity, how much it cares about unity and disunity. Churches that diligently pursue unity, the unity of the Spirit, are themselves preserved. On the other hand, churches that disregard unity find themselves in disrepair. I'm sure you know of examples. Maybe you've experienced some of those examples. It's just such a reality that leads me to the topic of unity this morning. If it's true that a church's longevity says something about how it views unity, well then I think our church has done a pretty good job. If Paul can feel the heat of the deadly rays of disunity in Philippi, a church some 20 years old, how many deadly rays of disunity has this church felt in a hundred years, a hundred plus years of ministry? And I believe we find ourselves in a moment where that poison planet of disunity is seeking to break through the clouds. Understand me, I'm not saying that there is disunity. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that anyone is being divisive. What I'm saying is that we've come upon a moment in the life of this church where our next actions will determine what we believe about unity. What God has done, what I believe God has done, is gifted us an opportunity He's gifted us an opportunity to affirm that His ways are not our ways. He's given us an opportunity to lay aside our preferences and to choose a path of peace. With each word, with each action, we have the opportunity to preserve the unity of this local body. And because there's something at stake, our preferences our beliefs, our convictions, the opportunity before us is a meaningful one. It has weight to it. The question before us is simply this. In spite of our preferences, in spite of our beliefs, in spite of our convictions, are we going to pursue unity? If you're visiting this church, visiting our church this morning or you're listening as a visitor, thank you for being with us. We're, we're glad that you're here. 
However, you have come on a Sunday in which the members of this church will be taking a vote after service. We've already announced it from, from the front in our announcement time. We'll be taking a vote after the service to make some changes to the way our leadership is structured here at Rosedale Bible Church. We provided the biblical rationale for these changes in two Sunday night teaching sessions, and we've had two Sunday meetings, Sunday night meetings, in which we've tried to address any questions our members have had about these changes. Although not a perfect process, we've made mistakes along the way. I believe we've provided ample opportunity for our members to investigate these proposed changes and have any of their questions answered. I believe that's true. And of course, as the senior pastor of this church and as one of the elders, I believe these changes are for the best. I am for them. We've tried to make the point through this process that the elders don't believe our current leadership structure, we don't believe that the current leadership structure is sinful. We don't believe that. Neither do we believe that it hasn't worked. We've never said that to that point. To measure our decisions by what works, well, that's pragmatism. And the Bible never proposes that kind of thinking. There have been times that our current leadership structure has worked really well. And there have been times that our current leadership structure has failed us. Both are true. And there will be times, if our structure is changed, that that structure will fail us. And there will be times that it won't fail us. But understand, the things of the Lord are never, never to be measured by what works. That's not what's in question. What's in question is what does the Bible say? We don't measure the things of the Lord by the people that are in the pews, by how many people come. That will always steer us the wrong way. We don't measure things by how much money comes in. We don't measure things by our preferences, what we like or what we don't like. Rather, the things of the Lord must be measured by the metric of Scripture. That's what's at question. The church in Philippi was a healthy church, and I believe it was a very healthy church. The church in Thessalonica was the most healthy church, the healthiest church. Paul offers absolutely no corrections to that church, but he says in a number of places, he uses a phrase, excel still more. Or do what you're doing more and more. Continue to be faithful in the things that you're doing. Well, I believe the changes that we, we are proposing in, in this amendment change is the way for us in this moment to excel still more. To take our current obedience and to step further in it to do more and more, to excel still more. I believe that's what the opportunity we have today. That's before us. And so, therefore, with all of this in mind, 
the significance of unity in mind in our current situation. I believe the Lord has something to teach us in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And so if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. So, Paul writes, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. This is our big idea this morning from this text. Paul calls us, Paul calls the church in Philippi, he calls us, I believe, to pursue unity in order to complete his joy. That is our big idea. If you would, I'd like to pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you, and Lord, I want to ask for help. I need your help. Calm my heart, Lord. Be with us this morning. By the power of your Spirit, Lord, we plead for unity and for love. In Jesus' name, amen. The outline this morning I'm using, I'm going to steal it. I'm stealing it from John MacArthur. He had a really good outline and why reinvent the wheel. And so I'm going to use his outline this morning. The first, uh, the first thing we want to consider in this passage is the motive for unity. The motive for unity. Paul begins in verse 1, again explaining that motive. And the motive is answering the question, why? Why do we pursue unity? Well, Paul gives us four reasons. First reason is right there in front of you. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, Paul says. Now, you read this phrase, and it is a conditional statement, if, but this is in the Greek what they call a first-class condition, which means that the if there is not speculative. Paul's not wondering if this is true or not. He is saying it's true. It's a rhetorical device. He's saying something like, and there's going to be four reasons, so he's saying something like, if A, B, C, and D are true, and they are true, well then do this, namely, complete my joy, which is what he's going to say here in this text. And so, first reason why we pursue unity is that there is encouragement in Christ. You tell me, is there encouragement in Christ? Amen. Paul says to the Ephesians that in Christ we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Peter says that through the knowledge of Christ, he has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. As Christians, we have access to every spiritual blessing. We have been granted all things that pertain to life and godliness. You and I have access to a rich storehouse of resources in Christ 
If there is an encouragement in Christ, there is, number two, comfort from love, he says. Doesn't it bring you comfort to know that you're loved? Has anyone ever argued that it's good for a parent to withhold the words, I love you, from a child? Of course not. There's no better way to bring comfort than to express love. If it's a wonderful thing to know we are loved by our parents and friends, and it is, how much more wonderful is it to know that we are loved by our God? Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends, which is what our Lord did for us. There's encouragement in Christ. There's comfort from love. There's participation in the Spirit, Paul says. Participation, fellowship, partnership, communion, shared life in the Spirit. As members of Christ's body, each of us participate, share in the Spirit. We have the same indwelling Spirit that abides within each of us. Of course, the Lord, God, being a spirit, can do that. And although we participate in that spirit, is he divided? Well, no, he's not divided. The Lord is one. He can't be divided. And yet we participate. And so it demonstrates our unity, that we have participation in the spirit. Each of us participates in, we have fellowship in, we have partnership with, we have a shared life in the same spirit. Finally, he gives us a fourth reason. Using two terms here, there's affection and sympathy. The word affection in the Greek describes the stomach. Last, last week we talked about the heart and we talked about the mind. When the Bible talks about affection, it uses the bowels. The deep affection is what he's saying here. In chapter 1, verse 8, Paul wrote, For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Deep in the bowels, I love you. The second word, sympathy, has to do with the feelings of mercy. Sympathy is the result of affection. Because there is so much affection for us from the Lord, well, He is merciful. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of our all comfort. James tells us the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now put this all together. Why do we pursue unity? Because the Lord has given us a storehouse of resources. He's proven His love for us. Each of us participates in His Spirit. His love has been poured out into our hearts through the Spirit. Paul doesn't present unity as a legal duty. This isn't our duty to be united. It's our response. That's what he's saying. If you understand all that God has done for us, why would you ever be divided with one another? This is where Paul wants to lead us. It's our way of demonstrating, our unity is a way of demonstrating our satisfaction in Him. Here's what the Lord wants us to do. 
using that illustration again of that planet, to adjust the aperture, so to speak, to let all the light of the encouragement in Christ, all the light of the comfort from love, all the light of the participation of the, in the Spirit, all the light of His affection and His sympathy, let it shine through onto our hearts so there's no sight of that distant planet of disunity. It's like walking out here today and try to find a star. Can you find a star? Can't find a star. Where's the moon? You can't see it because there's too much light breaking through. Well, so, so it is with us. There's no sight of that distant planet of disunity. Finally, Paul says in verse 2, if all these things are true, and again, they are true, it's not speculative, all these things are true, then what? Well, do this, he says in verse 2, complete my joy. Complete my joy. This is really the central thought of the section. This is the main clause and this is the main verb. It's an imperative. It's a command. Fulfill my joy. Paul is saying, if Paul is saying, pursue unity for the Lord's sake in verse 1, he's saying, pursue unity for my sake in verse 2. Paul can be very personal in his letters, we know that. There's no exception here. Paul teaches us that unity is a pathway to joy. There's no doubt our Lord would find joy in the unity of his people. You remember his prayer in John chapter 17. He prayed, saying to the Father, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. Jesus is praying that our unity would, would be analogous to his unity, be similar to the unity that God has with himself. That's our model. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Now, that's not a point I'm going to push on this morning, but our unity demonstrates to a watching world the greatness of our God. They'll know our love. They'll know we are Christians by our love. If the world looks in, if the Lord hears us complaining all the time about our church, what does Jesus look like to them? But yet, if, if the Lord hears about our unity and our satisfaction with one another, how we care for each other, how we love each other, how we're united in the same thinking, how we're all united with the same purpose and we're moving the same direction, now that's appealing. That is appealing to a watching world. The, the result of unity in, is joy in Paul's life. It's joy in our Lord's life. Well, the author of Hebrews, likewise, we read it some weeks ago, Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, he says, and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. The Bible is calling us to make the Lord glad and to make our leaders glad with our obedience. 
And I believe this even works for our joy, which is why it says in that text, for that would be of no advantage to you. What is to your advantage? To obey and to submit. Because that's the pathway to joy. It always is. In the economy of God or God's economy. It would be unprofitable for me to push against my leaders and cause them to groan. What works for, for their joy and for mine and for the Lord's is to recognize that my leaders have been appointed by God. Acts 20, 28. Paul says to the Ephesian elders that they have been appointed by God. To recognize that they have been appointed by God to lead and to shepherd me and I have been called to obey and to submit to them. Which is how I pursue unity. Not the only way, but is a principal way that I pursue unity. Is to trust God, to trust my leaders, and to obey them. It's true in my life. We might have 120 volts of electricity coming into our house. I think that's right. I'm not an electrician. <laughs> but if the wiring behind the wall is damaged, well, the light isn't going to turn on. So it is with our unity. The power of joy, it's there. The power of joy is there, excuse me. The electricity is set. Now, what we need to do is we need to clean the wires and make sure that unity is running through those wires so the light comes on and we can have joy. Paul has more to teach us from verse 2. Verse 1, we saw the motives for unity. Here in verse 2, we'll see the marks of unity. This is the second part of your outline, the marks of unity. This verse answers the question, what does the pursuit of unity look like? What does it look like? Well, there were four statements uh, on motive, and there are four statements or four marks of unity. And these marks overlap to some degree, and so they're not completely distinct. The first thing he says is, again, complete my joy by doing what? By being of the same mind. This is a call to be like-minded, to think the same. The first mark of unity is that we think the same way. Unity doesn't begin with our emotions, it begins with our mind. It's what we believe in. It's what we affirm. John MacArthur writes, Christianity is first and foremost about the mind. It's about the renewing of your mind. It's about how you think. It's about tearing down every idea raised up against the knowledge of God and bringing every thought captive to Christ. The very foundation of this unity is truth. Truth Proclaimed, proclaimed truth, explained truth, implied truth, applied. It all begins with doctrine. It all begins with truth, end quote. Here's the deal. We can't be unified if we don't think the same way. Now, I recognize we're going to see things from different perspectives. Of course, that's true. We're going to emphasize different things. There's always nuance to things. There's a wonderful complexity in these things, and it's good for us. Unity does not mean uniformity. Yet, what does Paul say in Philippians 4.8? Finally, brothers, whatever is true, 
whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, do what? Think about these things. If if it all starts with what's true, and what's true is something that's honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, and excellent, and therefore if it's worthy of praise, well, what what, what should we do with that? We think about those things. Begins with a mind and our thinking. So the first mark is that we have the same mind. We think the same way. We not only think the same way, but Paul continues and says we have the same love. We have the same love. The second mark of unity is that we maintain the same love. Romans 12.10 says we are to love one another with brotherly affection. The Bible is calling us to not only be like-minded, but to be devoted to one another in love. I don't think I have to convince you that love flows easily when we agree. You almost don't have to work at it at all when we agree on something. Love is just flowing. 1 John 5.1 says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. This means that if we love God, we'll love each other. It's a powerful statement. Our love for each other is the proof. Our love for each other is the proof that we have been born of God. Third mark of unity, Paul says, being in full accord. Being in full accord. There's one word used in the Greek here. The NASB translates this, unity in spirit, or the NIV, being one in spirit. Those are good translations. The word really means one soul. Seems kind of silly, but really the idea is soulmates. One accord. We're soulmates, is what Paul is saying. As soulmates, we're rallied around the same truth. We love the same things. We want the same things. We're passionate about the same things. Finally, he says, the fourth mark is that we are of one mind, of one mind. Remember, I told you there's some overlap with these four. This has the idea as well of being purposeful, pursuing the same goals. And so if there's a nuance to this final mark, it's that. We're a united front with a united purpose. As our elder Brad Sorensen is fond of saying, our purpose is simply this, simply this, to glorify God. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We're intent on the same purpose. Romans 15, 5, Paul writes, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice do what? Glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think that verse really brings all of these things together. In the end, God is calling us to speak with one voice and with one purpose, with a common understanding, with an equal and shared love for one another as soulmates, pursuing the same goals, united for the same purpose, to glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Something interesting to note, a little bit of a side note, although Scripture calls us to pursue unity, and that's what we're addressing this morning, and we are to do that, to do that 
Unity is inherent to who we are as Christians. The metaphor of the body proves this point. I don't need to argue that your hands, your feet, your eyes, and your ears are parts of your body. Well, likewise, as Christians, we're members of one another. It's inherent. It's true. We can't be divided. We're members of the same body. And so, really, at the end of the day, unity is more about recognition than achievement. If we understood who we are in Christ, well, the natural product of that is that we're united because we are. We're members of one another. We participate in the same spirit. We are united. Whether you like it or not, we're united. We are one family. Unity is more about recognition than achievement. Well, all of this brings us finally to the means of unity found in verses 3 and 4. This is going to answer the question, how? How do we pursue unity? Verses 3 and 4, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Another way of saying this, this is the method, the method of unity. He starts by telling us what we shouldn't do. We have negatives and positives. First off, do nothing from selfish ambition. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Well, what is selfish ambition? Well, it's the pursuit, it's a person, describes the person who is interested in advancing themselves, not the work of God. It's to advance your own agenda. And here in the context of unity, the selfish ambition is a divisive tactic in this context. It's to cause rivalry and to be factious. It's to be partisan. In Galatians 5, Paul uses the word in a list of works of the flesh. He pairs it with things like strife and jealousy, fits of anger, dissensions, and divisions. This is selfish ambition. He adds another word. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. That's a second negative. Literally, empty glory. If you're familiar with the King James Version, old translation, this is where they use the word vainglory to capture the idea. Vainglory. This is the state of mind that seeks personal glory or gain. Barclay describes to be admired, to be respected, to have a platform seat, to have one's opinions sought, to be known by name and appearance, to be listened to, to have a certain degree of fame, to be flattered. All of these things are elements of vain glory. If we're not to do anything from selfish ambition or vain glory, well, what are we to do, Paul? Paul says positively, in humility, we are to count others more significant than ourselves. The idea behind the word humility here is humble-mindedness or lowliness. That's what he's getting at here. The picture of service to others that Paul is giving us is not unlike that of a slave. He's really talking about slavery, which is something the world can't know. We know it. Paul knew it. How does he begin this letter? Paul and Timothy, servants, doulos, slaves, he says, of Christ Jesus. Paul is a slave, and so he calls us to slavery. 
The world teaches us to seek to be admired, to be respected, to have special honors, to be known, to be listened to, to be prominent. What God calls us to is to lay aside all of those pursuits. Finally, verse 4. Let each of you not only, not only uh, look not only, excuse me, to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Of course, we have to look out for certain personal interests. We have to care for our bodies. We have to work care for our families, all these things are true. But Paul says, don't only be concerned with those things. Also be concerned with the interests of others. What exactly are the interests of others? What does he mean by that? Well, it simply means whatever a person is interested in. Could be a lot of different things. Hobbies, preferences, issues, concerns, situations, needs, anything that that person deems important. In other words, anything and everything that matters to a person should matter to you. If you have a successful marriage, you understand this. You care about each other. You show interest for what, that, what your spouse is interested in. If you have a healthy relationship with your kids, it's probably true. You're interested in what they're interested in. If you have healthy friendships, it's probably true. So how do we pursue unity? I suppose we could summarize all of these four things here in verses 3 and 4 with two words, lowliness and helpfulness. Lowliness and helpfulness. I don't think it's hard to imagine how these actions might result in unity. So we have before us the motives for unity, the why. Why do we pursue unity? The marks of unity. What does it look like to pursue unity? And the means of unity. How? How do we go about doing that? All of that's here in these four verses. If I could summarize all of this in two sentences, maybe three, maybe four, this would be my summary. It's from the place or from a place of gratitude for all that Christ has done for us that we pursue unity. And we pursue unity by working to maintain the same convictions concerning the truth. Loving everybody the same, being soulmates and living for the glory of God. And how does this work? Well, it works when we set aside our selfish pursuits and concern, and we concern ourselves with the interest of others. That's essentially what this passage is saying. That's my summary. And in this way, as the text says, this unity produced joy in Paul's life. And I believe that unity produces joy in ours. Therefore, it's fair to say that unity is a pathway, a means to joy. Divisive people are not joyful people. Of course, you know that Paul gives us more than motives, gives us more than means, gives us more than marks. In the verses that follow, Paul is going to give us a model. Look at verse 5. 
have this mind among yourselves. What mind? Consider others better than yourselves. Everything he just said about unity. Have this mind among yourselves, he says, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. There's no more profounder truth than this, friends. I can hardly read it. But he emptied himself. How? By taking the form, bad translation, by taking the form of a slave. That's what it says. Taking the form of a slave. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There's the model, friends. It doesn't get any higher and it doesn't get any lower. <laughs> Richest truth in Scripture. Do you think we'd have any problems with unity if we were all like Christ? I wish we were. I wish I was. At the end of the day, if we're not in tune with each other, it's because we're not in tune with Christ. A.W. Tozer once said, this is for Joel, by the way, this illustration. He said that if a hundred pianos, <laughs> if a hundred pianos were merely tuned to each other, their pitch would not be very accurate. But if they were all tuned to one tuning fork, amen, they would automatically be in tuned with each other. Similarly, unity in the church isn't the result of running around and adjusting to everyone else. Rather, the key to unity is becoming like Christ. If we tune ourselves to Christ, we'll be in tune with each other. It's that simple. And friends, it's that life that we're going to celebrate this morning with communion. If you're a visitor this morning, we partake of communion on the first Sunday of the month. Communion is one of two special ordinances given to us by the Lord, and the other is baptism. With communion, or the Lord's Supper, we have the opportunity to remember the death of Christ, and we do that with the bread and the cup, with the cracker and some juice. As we partake of these elements, the bread and the cup, we participate in a special ceremony that allows us to remember Christ, and not only that, but it also speaks to our unity. That's an important element of communion. What does the word communion mean anyway? Right? We have communion with one another. We have communion with the Lord. Excuse me, I really need a tissue, but I just have to bear with me. <clears throat> in fact, the context of the communion passage found in 1 Corinthians 11, the one that we read when we do communion, the context of that passage is division. Division is what Paul is talking about when he gives us this passage of Scripture. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 18, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. He's talking about divisions in the church. To make a long story short, I don't want to teach this passage, there were certain class distinctions in the local church, and they were threatening the unity of the church in this context in 1 Corinthians. 
Paul's cautioning then, found throughout these chapters, chapters 10 and 11, is that the church would rightly understand that their participation in communion is a reflection of their participation in Christ. It mirrored that. How could they eat and drink if they were at odds with each other? That's the whole point in this text. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 16 and 17. The cup of blessing that we bless, is, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. In communion, we remember Christ not as individuals. We don't do communion alone. We would never do that. We do communion together as a body, united, according to all these things that we just said in Philippians chapter 2, 1 through 4. The same thinking, the same love, same purpose. We do, we, we practice and we celebrate communion as members of one body. And as members of one another, we must examine the unity that we have between one another. We must examine that unity. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the, blood and the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Examine and then eat and drink. That is why many of you who are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. This morning, church, we have the opportunity to bring our disunity to the Lord, to confess our sins, to examine our hearts before the Lord. W.A. Criswell was the pastor of First Baptist Church of Dallas for 47 years. As far as preachers and preaching go, Criswell is one of the best. Apparently, Criswell faced a day in his church when disunity grew. Thank you, I'm so sorry. <clears throat> Criswell faced a day in his church, thanks Ben, when disunity grew to such a degree that he feared a split in his church. His daughter tells the story. One Sunday, he became so concerned about the disunity in his church that he called a construction company. Apparently, he called Steve Lowen. He called Steve and he said, Before next Sunday, I want kneeling benches installed in every pew of the church. By next Sunday, every pew had kneeling benches. When his daughter tells that story, it had been 70 years and there had never been a split in that church. Now, of course, I'm not suggesting that we install kneelers in our pews. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that. However, I will suggest that Criswell rightly understood the severity of disunity. And he rightly understood how to prevent it. Criswell understood that to prevent disunity, we have to assume the right posture. I'll be very specific if any one of us 
any one of us, myself included, has been the source of disunity or discord in any way over the past two months or longer, I don't know, however long it's been. If we have been the source of disunity or discord, well, this morning, church, we have the opportunity to bring that to the Lord. We have the opportunity to confess it and to receive forgiveness, to eat and to drink. It's a tremendous opportunity. And positively, we have the opportunity to tell the Lord that I will pursue unity. No one is above this. I'm not above it. Your elders are not above it. None of you, no, how, no matter how long you've been here, are above that. This is our lot as Christians to come before the Lord, to confess, to repent, and to change. Here's a wonderful promise from Scripture. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us from our sins and do what? To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a sweet promise. Here's a wonderful command. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Don't you want that? Don't you want joy? That's what he's getting at. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Amen? I'm going to pray, and when I'm done, the men can come up and, and serve us the bread. But let's pray before I invite the men up. Gracious Father, we're overwhelmed by your goodness. Oh, there's such encouragement in Christ. There's such comfort from love. There's such participation in your spirit. There's affection from you deep in the bowels. And there's sympathy. There's mercy for us. You are such an amazing God. To come in contact with you is, well, there's nothing like it. We pray, Lord, that as we come before your table, as we eat and we drink and we remember you, Lord, we pray that this would be an opportunity, Lord, to bring our sin to you, to repent of it, Lord, to call on you for forgiveness, and, Lord, to commit to pursuing unity here at Rosedale Bible Church, Lord, for your sake. So be with us now, Lord, as we celebrate. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, you can come up.